Good morning, everyone. Um, let's turn to God's Word this morning and to First Peter. First Peter chapter 1, and we'll be reading the verse, first 12 verses together. First Peter chapter 1, beginning the reading at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together, Lord, to study your word this morning. Lord, I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to each one of us. Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In your name I pray. Amen. So uh, just by way of background here, uh, the author identifies himself clearly um, in verse 1 of the chapter as being Peter. It was probably written somewhere between AD 60 and AD 68, and it's addressed to Christians who are scattered across Asia Minor, um, and he names five places all within this region, which are in and around modern-day Turkey. This morning we're really going to be focusing on verses 3 to 12, and I'm very conscious there's a lot of stuff packed in there. Uh, we could spend hours digging into it. Um, you'll be glad I'm not going to speak for hours this morning. But we're really only going to be skimming the surface here. But first of all, let's take a look at the first two verses very briefly. When the early church Christians were reading this letter, they would have seen the importance of it. They would have recognized how important it was when they seen who it was coming from. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, They would have sat up and listened. They would have sat up and taken note. This is the Peter who was so close to Jesus. 
So if he has something he feels he needs to write to us about, it's going to be worth listening to. Various different Bible translations word uh, verse 1 in different ways, but they all mean the same thing. Some use the term pilgrim to describe who he's writing to. Others use the word stranger. And the ESV that I've read from this morning, it describes those that Peter is writing to here as elect exiles. So what does it mean to be a stranger, to be a pilgrim, to be an elect exile? Well, all of these terms describe someone who's not in their true home. Someone who's not in their true home. home. Someone who's on a journey. Someone who is longing for something more. Peter here is not speaking of a literal exile. But these exiles he speaks of are the Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Who are longing for their true home. Searching for something more. Searching for heaven. Their promised home in heaven. That's what he means by elect exiles. We are chosen. A special people. Set apart. We have an assurance of an inheritance. As we'll see later. And today right at the outset. I want to ask this question of all of us. Those of us here who are Christians. Who are not at home in this world. Do we truly live life longing for heaven? I remember listening to a friend of mine speaking once. And what he said has always stuck with me. About how we need to view this world. We need to look at things with an eternal perspective. With heaven and eternity in mind. And the term he used was, if you want to look at it through eternal glasses. Through those eternal glasses. I wonder do we do that? Day by day, in our day to day lives. I know for me personally it's something that I struggle with. I struggle to view everything with eternity in mind. Why? Well, human nature. It's part of our human nature that so often we can't see anything other than the here and the now. Simply because our lives, they're so self-centered where the focus is all me, me, me. What's best for my life? What's best for me? Rather than thinking about the future, about eternity and what ultimately matters. Um, a couple of you will have heard this, me use this illustration before. I used this illustration at camp um, in a social media talk I was doing. But imagine, and for some of us, this will maybe be easier to imagine than others. But imagine you're sitting at McDonald's. Um, you're over beside the window. Uh, you're sitting beside the window with a group of friends. And a group of people around your age, you have never seen them before in your life. They walk in. And one guy, he's standing there. He's talking to his mate. Uh, they're chatting away, but he's looking at you while he's talking. What happens? Well, for some of us, straight away, alarm bells start going, don't they? Maybe some of you, you just push it off. It's awkward eye contact. One of those awkward moments. But then you look over again. Five minutes later, you've just continued on, ignored it. You look over again. And these two people, they're still standing talking, but instead of one looking your direction, they're both looking your direction. Immediately, what are you thinking? You're starting to think, what's wrong with me? Is there something wrong with my hair? Is there something on my face? The reality is, if you could hear the conversation they were having, they've just seen a mate of theirs going around the drive through Remember I said you were sitting at the window? They've seen a mate of theirs going around the drive through and they're just trying to get his attention. 
But you see, we keep care what people think about us. We care if they're judging us. Why did we even think those people were talking about us in the first place, if we're honest? It's because of how self-centered a people that we are. When they're just standing there 20 feet away, looking in our general direction, we think there's nothing else in this whole world they could possibly be talking about other than me. If they just happen to be glancing in our direction and they're standing 20 feet away, they have to be talking about me. There's nothing else they could be talking about. It's the reality. It's because of that self-centered focus that we tend to focus on the here and the now. We don't view things as we should from an eternal perspective. So following these opening greetings in the first two verses, we see Peter writing about how we've been born again to a living hope. And that's what this morning's message is entitled, A Living Hope. Right at the outset, I want to ask you this question. What is your hope in this morning? What are you hoping in? So this morning I want us to see three things from this passage. Verses 3 to 5, we see the source of our hope. Verses 6 to 9, we see the purpose of our suffering. And then in verses 10 to 12, we'll see the worth of our salvation. So firstly, let's look at verses 3 to 5 and the source of our hope. Notice, as soon as Peter begins to contemplate this, what's his immediate reaction? Praise to God. Praise and worship to God. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. He's praising God because he has given believers new life. He's given us a guarantee. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you have that inheritance being kept in heaven for you. What a privilege. What a promise. But how do we have this great inheritance? How were we given it? Through something we did? Through some work of our own? Of course not. Peter tells us right here in verse 3 that it's according to God's great mercy. The story is told of a mother who once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offence twice and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the woman explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. See, mercy is something that we do not deserve Mercy is something that we have received from God and we didn't deserve it. And yet he shows it to us. We each sin every single day, be it in thought or word or in the things that we do. We each do wrong. But God shows mercy. He sent his one and only son to forgive us. So that we could be born again, as the Bible talks about. That our old sinful life would be gone and we are made new. And we have God, the Holy Spirit, within each one of us to help us to live to please him. This doesn't mean we no longer sin. Look around. None of us need to look any further than the thoughts of our own mind to know that we still sin. But God is merciful and he forgives us. Verse 3 tells us that God has caused us to be born again. He has made us new 
because of Jesus' death on the cross. He took the punishment that you and I deserved. God punished Jesus in our place. God showed mercy. So that if we ask him to forgive us, we can have that personal relationship with him. Those of us here this morning who have done that, we have that living hope that Peter talks about. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again, defeating death, and he's alive in heaven today. So that is the source of our hope. That is the reason that we, as Christians, can look forward with certainty, safe in the knowledge we have an inheritance in heaven. But I ask again, what about you? What about you this morning? Maybe you haven't yet asked God to forgive you. You don't have that assurance and that inheritance to look forward to. So what are you hoping in? The Christian has a hope that is unlike the definition of the hope that we use day to day. Day to day, when we use the term hope in our day to day conversations, it's some, we think something might happen. Um, will it happen? Will it not? There's an element of probability about it. We as believers this morning have a hope that is certain and sure. That's where my hope lies this morning. My hope is in Jesus Christ. What are you hoping in? There's one reason for this hope that we as Christians have. Verse 4 tells us what it is. It's the resurrection of Christ, isn't it? Keep your finger um, in 1 Peter 1. But flick with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When we speak of the hope that we have through the resurrection, um, there's no better place to turn to than 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll read verses 12 to 22. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you've been born again to this living hope. You have this unshakable hope and assurance for the future. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then that passage tells us our faith is futile. Our preaching is in vain. In fact, Paul tells us that we are of all people most to be pitied. But then look at verse 20. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. 
He is risen. Our faith is not futile. Our preaching is not in vain. Because we've been born again to a living hope, an unshakable hope for the future, a guarantee of eternal life. Verse 4 of 1 Peter 1 tells us that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Now you could take time to go into the details of what each of those mean for us. What is an imperishable inheritance, an undefiled inheritance and an unfading inheritance. But time doesn't permit us to go into all of that this morning. But we do need to grasp what this verse is fundamentally saying. The key question to ask is do you have that inheritance? That Peter writes about. What is this inheritance firstly? Well it's the promise of eternal life. With Jesus Christ in heaven isn't it? We as believers can rest assured. In the fact that this book. Is the authoritative word of God. That is 100% true and reliable. And it tells you in this book. That you can be guaranteed an inheritance. So I wonder this morning. Is that inheritance yours? Google threw up a few different definitions for imperishable when I was looking at this. Um, It means enduring forever, or it can be referred to as something that is not subject to decay. We also have an inheritance that's undefiled, meaning it's not unclean, but rather it's pure and it's perfect. So we have this pure, perfect inheritance that lasts forever and is unfading. It will never fade away, it will never lose its wonder. Or as one dictionary puts it, it will never lose its brightness, vitality or strength. We have this incredible inheritance to look forward to. And it is kept in heaven for us by God as we see in verses 4 and 5. When we ask for forgiveness, when we are born again, we are guaranteed that inheritance. We cannot lose it through anything that we do. We should live our lives seeking to please and honour God. But the Bible clearly tells us in John 10 verse 28 that when we are born again, when we receive eternal life, no one, no one can snatch us out of God's hand. What a privileged people we are. As believers here this morning who have a God like this, a God who is the source of our hope. Secondly, let's look at verses 6 to 9 and the purpose of our suffering. The start of verse 6 gives us a key instruction in how to try to deal with times of suffering. Peter writes, in this you rejoice. What are we supposed to be rejoicing in? Well, the verses we just looked at about the source of our hope, if those don't give a Christian cause for joy this morning, then I don't know what will. That's not to say that there won't be hard times. There will. The Bible tells us that there will be. But we will have him to help us through. There are times that we'll doubt him. Times that we'll question what he's doing. But that's when we need to remind ourselves that he is in control. He has a plan. He is superior. Isaiah 40. Stephen actually read from it this morning. It reminds us later in that chapter. Um, of that very thing. As it tells us the nations are as nothing to him. They are like dust and that we are like grasshoppers as he sits above the circle of the earth. And yet God loves us grasshoppers. Us insignificant people, a people who willingly disobey him every single day. He loves us and he knows what is best for us. 
And that will involve hardships and struggles. But we have to trust him. And I'm not up here because I've got this all right. I'm not up here because I've got this all sorted out. Don't think that for a second. I struggle to trust him fully too. I feel him time and time again. But I'm grateful that we serve a God who is gracious to forgive. These sufferings we go through, they're not a plan B or a plan C that God didn't see coming. They're his will for our lives, that our faith may be tested and proved to be genuine, proved to be the real deal, and it will prove to be more precious than gold. Notice what it says about gold in this passage, that it perishes though though it's tested by fire. Gold is deemed as being precious to us. It's seen as a precious metal and it symbolizes wealth. Gold and indeed everything in this world that we deem valuable. It'll all fade away. It'll all perish. It can't last forever. There's nothing wrong with having money. Being successful in your career. Business. Whatever. But it shouldn't be what you worship. It shouldn't be what you prioritize. God has got to come first. When that final day comes. Do you think it will really matter what you've done in your career, how much money you've built up. The only thing that will matter is the answer to this question. What have you done with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? Have you accepted him and asked him to forgive you? Or have you rejected him and went your own way? Verse 24 and 25 of this passage quote Isaiah 40 and they tell us about the only things that last forever. The word of God. The word of God remains forever. Back at the youth event that we ran here last harvest, Howard Beverlin said something that's really stuck with me. God is good. His word is faithful and true. You can build your life upon it. See, God is a faithful God. God keeps his promises. And when we are told that we have an inheritance... You can be sure that if you're a Christian, that inheritance is being kept in heaven for you. We haven't yet seen him, but we love him. We believe in him and in the promise of heaven that he gives to us. Remember what that promise of of heaven entails. No more tears. No more pain. No more suffering. We will exist forever with God and we will spend forever praising God. And glorifying him because he is worthy. Warren Wearsbury writes, Suffering does not automatically bring glory to God and blessing to God's people. Some believers have fainted and fallen in times of trial and have brought shame to the name of Christ. It is only when we depend on the grace of God that we can glorify God in times of suffering. He also says, Charles Spurgeon used to say, a little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. And Wearsby goes on to comment, it is not enough that we long for heaven during times of suffering, for anybody can do that. What Peter urged his readers to do was exercise love, faith and rejoicing so that they might experience some of the glory of heaven in the midst of suffering now. As hard as it is, we need to trust God in the midst of our suffering. Trust him that he knows what he is doing. 
and we are to try to glorify him. So what's the purpose of our suffering? Well, it brings us to this place, to a place of total reliance and total dependence on God. And we must remember that it's all part of God's plan for our lives and ultimately to bring glory and honour to his name. We've looked at the source of our hope and the purpose of our suffering. Let's briefly look at the worth of our salvation. What's our salvation worth? Well, when we're attempting to determine the worth of something, what do we do? We usually take into account the cost, don't we? Well, what did our salvation cost us? Nothing. It's a free gift. But that does not make it worthless. The price that was paid on our behalf for our salvation was so great it makes it worth more than anything else we have. It's priceless. It cost Christ his life and that is why he came. The Jews of the day thought he had come to overthrow the Romans. Not at all. He came to die in the place of guilty sinners like you and me. And don't let anyone tell you that man put Jesus to death on that cross and that there was nothing he could do to stop it. He chose to die and he did it out of a heart of love. The God who created this universe, he had come to earth in human form, resisting arrest, that would have been nothing to him. But he had come to pay the price and that is why our salvation is worth so, so much. It's because it cost him so much. In verses 10 and 11 of this passage, we read of the prophecies of Old Testament prophets. They didn't know when their prophecies would come to be fulfilled. But they were faithful in being messengers of God and they foretold Christ's sufferings. In fact, the book of Isaiah contains such an incredibly detailed account of the crucifixion that it's incredible that he wasn't actually there, standing at the cross, looking on. In fact, he was writing 700 years earlier. Verse 12 tells us that even angels long to look into these things. This term long isn't to be used flippantly, as we so often do today. In the original, it can be translated as this immense desire or craving. John Piper describes it in the following way. This does not mean they want to, but can't. It means they want to because in a sense they are outsiders to the drama of sin and redemption because they never sinned. And they love to watch the great work of God's salvation unfold in history and in the lives of saints. Peter's point is this. If angels get excited about our salvation, how much more should we? If angels love to look at the work of God in saving sinners like us, How much more should we, who are the very beneficiaries of that salvation, not just the onlookers, how much more should we love to look into it and be thankful for it and say with Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, I want to ask that question that I asked at the start. What are you hoping in? Many of you will remember famous preacher Billy Graham passed away over a year ago and I've quoted this uh, here before and he once said this someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead 
Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. I wonder, can you say with the same confidence that Billy Graham had, that that applies to you this morning as well? Billy Graham knew he had an inheritance waiting on him. I wonder, do you? Do you have that inheritance waiting in heaven for you? And for those of us who know that we do, do we live life through those, looking through those eternal glasses with an eternal perspective, with eternity in mind? Do we live our lives before others being a shining light? Do we share the gospel with others day to day? Because that's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for that inheritance that we can have, Lord, um, through a relationship with you, Lord. I thank you for those of us who are Christians, Lord, that we know that we have that inheritance waiting in heaven for us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't have that inheritance, Lord, that you will speak to them, Lord, and you will draw them onto yourself. In your name I pray. Amen.